All right, here we are. Up over here by the blue stairs and head on upstairs, please. Okay, welcome to Central Vineyard. Oh my gosh, what are you building right there? Is that like a Spider-Man battle bot? Okay, I probably didn't use the very specific Lego terminology that is required, because I've been out of that scene for a while, but I still appreciate it. Hey, so uh, welcome to Central Vineyard. I'm Jeff, I still have a mask on, that's awkward. There we go. Um, so, uh, Halloween, we just had Halloween a couple weeks ago, right? Did anyone dress up, go to a party? Anyone do any of that? Come on. Okay, Adrian dressed up. Anyone else? Okay, all right. Wow. I mean, we need to do better, I guess. But uh, I uh, actually, when Adrian and I got together, she thought I was always dressed up, trying to look ridiculous. And she didn't know that was just my lack of dress sense. She'd see me thinking, oh, Jeff's trying to make a statement by wearing those ridiculous moon boots with that giant multicolored Tibetan wool sweater. And oh, I just love that he doesn't care what anyone else thinks about him. And it was like, no, your interpretation was wrong. That was just me trying. Uh, but anyway, I remember uh, during previous days when I lacked some of the social graces I have now, I used to really enjoy crashing parties, like really crashing parties. I remember the last party I crashed, that's a different story, but I, what I would do is find out, we would go on campus, and when we'd see a bunch of people outside, this is before beer pong, or what's that game with the beanbags? Cornhole were invented. It was, it was just basically alcohol and uh, uh, dissipation or whatever. But we would go to these parties and just act like we belong there and see if it worked and talk to people. How do you know this? Oh, you know how it goes. And, and people would glad hand you, no one would really notice. So, and occasionally, I remember one time I went to a party and I saw one of my younger cousins there. I'm like, and, and she was like, oh my gosh, it's Jeff. <laughs> you know, like, what are you doing here? And it was funny. But one time we crashed a party, I think it was on Pacemont. We're just kind of zigzagging, saw a big party at Pacemont. Half the people were in costumes, half the people weren't in costumes. So we're going in there, looking around. Everyone's really nice. Uh, you can, a couple of people look at us sideways, like, okay, who invited them? In the corner, I saw this person who seemed really kind of clean cut. They had a big NIV study Bible, and they were wearing a t-shirt that said Lord's Gym, and it had a picture of Jesus on the ground with the cross on its back, and it said bench press this. And it was from this company called Living Epistles, and the point of these t-shirts were, if someone sees this, they're going to want to talk about Jesus. And uh, then you can share the gospel with them. And, but I was thinking about the context of this party and what was going on. And I thought, oh my gosh, this person in this context, they think they're helping and they're just hurting. This isn't going to help anyone in this context. I'm not saying that God doesn't use those things, but in this context, this isn't going to help. I was a little bit mortified and embarrassed that this person was, you know, I thought this fellow Christian person is dressed up this way. I mean, uh, you don't go to a party with a big book to sit in the corner and read. I love the Bible, but it's just, you know, context, context, context. So eventually, working around, I strike up a conversation with this gentleman. I said, so, you're a Christian or something? He goes, no. He said, this is a Halloween party. I dressed up as the scariest thing I could imagine, and it's one of those Bible thumpers on campus that's always trying to proselytize me. 
<laughs> I just, I was, I, I was speechless. I mean, I, I, I probably should have laughed, but I was like, oh my gosh, he's right. This person put on an outward costume that they thought would identify themselves as a Christian in order to dress up as something they were not that they deemed scary for Halloween. So when they thought Christian, they thought the person who does all this. And then they went into their little of their story of why they think Christians are scary. And everything they described about the Christians they'd encountered were also attributes that I find scary, or at the very least off-putting. You know, stuff that I'd say, if that were Jesus, I don't think I would run towards Jesus. But this person had identified that there were outward markers of affiliation, outward markers of affiliation. The people that do this, it's part of how they identify as being Christian. And what this person didn't dress up as if we go through the history of Christians, they weren't dressed up as a medic who instead of engaging in either side of a war or on the ground in the first century where the Romans are battling whoever, dressing the wounds of everything. They didn't dress up as a medic. They didn't dress up as a cook in a soup kitchen. Uh, they did not dress up as uh, William Wilberforce before British Parliament arguing for the abolition of slavery. They didn't dress up as all the peacemakers on the ground assisting in South Sudan when blood is running through, down the trails. All these things, if when I read Christian history, when I, uh, uh, the people who inspire me today or this, you, they don't have my daughter or my son doing all these Jesus-y things I see them do every week. They dressed up as this kind of parody. So this ties into the entire book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians is a book written by Paul. It's a very short book, and it is a book that is, culminates in a talk about the fruit of the Spirit, but the book, as far as we can tell, is written in a very angry tone at parts. The book is written, it just, if you just look at the words, it seems like a vitriolic book talking about curses, telling these people they should go ahead and emasculate themselves. And then it culminates in the discussion of the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, this really comes down to identifying markers. Um, we're going to discuss a lot of people, uh, kind of simplify these discussions to say what saves us. Is it doing these things that gives us salvation? Is it doing these God things that gives us salvation? Or is it doing nothing but believe that gives us salvation? And that's been the main focus of the book, when really it's more like, if you're the person of God, what do you do then? Because this was written to followers of Jesus. This was not written to get people to accept Jesus. This, this was written to get people to act like Jesus, or to enact Jesus, which would lead to many more people accepting Christ's love because it's been demonstrated. So this is about identification. Do you, any of you have the Plant Snap app where you take pictures of plants to see what it is? You know, you have all these plant identification books, but I found out there was an app to identify plants. And I've been the, doing this project on this property to remove invasive plants. And what I found, you can, I had a list of all the plants from the Soil Conservation Society 
of what plants were invasive. And I had them written down. Actually, I had them in a note. And then I would take pictures, leaves, and say, oh, this is whatever honeysuckle vine that is going to destroy all your plants. I said, okay, your days are numbered. Start chopping away, digging away, and burning the fire. So whatever attributes, these gathered attributes, some of the plants had berries that looked the same as other plants. Some of the plants had similar leaves. Some of the, but when you combined all the attributes of one plant, it would distinguish it from another. And I would know what to do. And not one of those, there may be a single attribute that can be seen elsewhere, but the entirety of all those attributes would narrow down what that plant is. And the fruit of the Spirit, which is very interesting, this passage that the kids just lingered on for a bit, the fruit of the Spirit, it's not fruits of the Spirit, even though it's helpful sometimes to think of that, like an apple of patience, an orange of kindness, but actually it's the fruit, singular. These are elements of a fruit. And probably one of the best ways I can uh, demonstrate that is like a pineapple. Pineapple is composed of vitamin C, vitamin A, calcium, iron, thiamine, riboflavin, vitamin B6, folate, pantothenic acid, magnesium, manganese, potassium, beta-carotene, and antioxidants that fight cancer. Go pineapples. So this would be like the pineapple of the spirit is... Vitamin C, vitamin A, the fruit of the spirit, what those individual things are the ingredients of what a spirit-inhabited life looks like. Because if you have love but don't have all of the things at the bottom, then you don't really have love. You can't have patience without love. You can't be actively impatient and call that loving behavior. These things are inextricably linked. And so where we're going to go with this is this whole book is aimed at the end, if the, all of Paul book, Paul's books, the theology at the front gives us the reality at the back. The theology of the front gives us the reality of the back. But if we spend all our time on the theology without reminding us of the reality that theology gives us, we might just enter into theological debates instead of, if we really know this and know it, know it, know it like Jesus knows it, know it in a way the Holy Spirit is walking with us, know it in a way that... This theology is our elements of who Jesus is, whom I love. What is it about knowing this truth that's going to make us live in a specific way? And I would argue that what Galatians is aiming at is, friends, every, every other religion, worldview, and cultural group has odd things they do specific to their culture that make them weird to other cultures. Every culture has that. But for you, your weirdness is all these elements of love. The weirdness of a follower of Jesus isn't how they dress, what they eat, or how, you know, the, the weirdness of a follower of Jesus is the fruit of the Spirit. What would be weirder today to some people that someone in the name of Jesus, talking about very secular people, what would be, how weird would it be to them to have their Christian friend being the most patient, kind, and gentle person they've ever met. That's not a story I hear too often. In part because, you know, a lot of stereotypically America is regarded as a Christian-founded nation, and I, I take issue with any nation that would claim to have Christ as its foundation. I don't think it's ever been true, ever. But what they do is they, since they take the behaviors of the people who identify as Christian the most loudly 
and call those the markers of Christianity. But the markers of living, not the markers of entry. This is not about if you're patient, kind, and gentle, you get to enter into a relationship with Jesus. This is about if you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you're walking with Jesus, you're eating with Jesus, you're rubbing shoulders with Jesus, and you are taking on the attributes of Jesus, and this is what it looks like, the fruit of the Spirit. And this goes against so much of the emphasis of Galatians as side A or side B, a way to win theological arguments, because at the core, this is a book that calls us to and empowers obedience to live a joyful life that is not contingent on people agreeing with us or making our behaviors legal or us having political power of authority. This book was written to a people that the greater their following of Jesus was demonstrated, the less power they would have socially and politically. The more clearly they followed Jesus, the less money they would make. The more they followed Jesus, they would destroy their career path. They were in cultures. For instance, these guys were in a probably northern Turkey settled by folks from France. Gaul, hence Gaulations. So that's probably where they were from. But no one there would have economic or power prosperity to embody Jesus. All right? It wasn't a career path. It was entry. But if you enter through the door of Jesus' house and hang out and break bread with Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit enters your life. And because Jesus is raised from the dead and Jesus is ascended to the presence of God, because Jesus is God in human body. And the great thing is we couldn't know God clearly until we saw God in human body. We could not know so much about God until we saw Jesus. The scriptures say uh, that the, the, the Old Testament was an imperfect revelation, or it was blurry, or in Hebrews it, it says it, it's like a mist around it where you could see the shadow in the general outline of God's story, which stood against every other belief system. It was so radically different. There was nothing like Judaism if it was lived out. And then uh, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, but in Jesus, it's crystal clear. Because God became human, defeated evil, took on every sin imaginable on his back, and then came back, vindicated that this is the true story. Every story is a fraud. And when Jesus rose to be with God the Father, we read about in Acts, his Holy Spirit came. And the great thing about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is not combined to a body that needs to eat, drink, sleep, and be in one place at one time. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is even though we're not one of the 12 disciples that rub shoulders with Jesus, we all and everyone we talk to can rub shoulders with Jesus and be transformed by a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. And that is what Paul, in this most vitriolic letter he wrote, he's addressing those that would steal joy from everyone else. So, uh, Evelyn, can you come up and read the passage, and then we'll say some other words. Here's the dealio. I think it's on. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. 
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. All right. Now, it's so funny. Having Evelyn, who's like one of the kindest people I know, reading a verse where Paul is really angry, it's kind of this weird juxtaposition of ideas. But I, I think that you perfectly in your voice represent the heart of Paul. All right, so that was great. So Paul, is, he doesn't, usually he begins with grace and peace be to you, and he says a little summary of the gospel, and then he starts saying, here's all the things I'm thankful for your church about, what I'm thankful about regarding your church. And there is no thankfulness part of the letter. You know, the idea when you confront someone, the sandwich method, begin with something positive, give the hard truth and something more positive. And Paul does not make a sandwich in this letter. Paul just goes in, and, but he gives a short summary of the gospel saying, this is what you guys are destroying by your proclivities and actions. So um, this, um, imagine your child going to school and you find out that the teacher, I mean, you have a third grade child and has one teacher. You find out your child who is generally a secure person, a fun kid that knew that they were loved. They start taking on attributes. Uh, they start acting depressed. They start, you hear them talking badly about themselves. I'm just so stupid. I can't do this. And you hear your child like saying all these negative things about themselves, about I'm not good enough, I'm not this. And you wonder, what is going on with my kid? My kid is generally a happy kid, and now they're totally hating on themselves. And then you go in to a parent-teacher conference, and you realize this teacher is an absolute grump. I mean, I'm miserable just to be in their presence. It looks like even if they smile, it's more like Heath Ledger's Joker than a good smile. And all I can hear them say is, my kid is disruptive in class. My kid doesn't pay attention. My kid doesn't try. My... And I'm thinking, you're thinking as a parent, I've spent my child's whole life with my child. I've spent years with my child, and I see so many good things about them, and all you're saying is these bad things about them. What kind of parent, what kind of feelings would you as a parent have if you know your child's sweet spirit was destroyed by a teacher? I mean, I... I've seen Adrian's anger when someone hurts someone else's kid. Can I tell the story? Oh, I've got a lot. 
I remember when Adrian and I were dating, we would uh, volunteer in uh, this youth group, and it was high school and middle school. In the middle school group, there was a couple kids that were very rambunctious who happened to be, one of the kids happened to be super dyslexic, could not read very well. I mean, could read alone, but could never read aloud. And this person, because they were cutting up, they said, well, you're going to read the scripture in front of everyone now. If, you're so, if you need to talk so much, you read the scripture in front of everyone now. And this kid gets up there and can't read it and is stammering and totally shamed. And I don't think, like, ever came back to that youth group ever again. So Adrian, 19-year-old Adrian, finds out about this. This older person. We're in the parking lot, and she's just so upset. And she's like this bucking bronco that no one can contain. This person comes out. Adrian goes at him like a Doberman pincher that's been trained in the lethal guard dog tactics. And she starts, I'm not saying this is the most Jesus-y way to confront someone. She gets his finger in this person's face and starts moving forward and telling them how evil what they did was and how wrong they were. And she's yelling, she's pointing, she's frightened as tears are flowing down her face because this person made someone feel stupid. And I look at that, I'm not, you know, maybe we could critique the way this went down, but the heart was because that was a sloppy rendition of Adrian sharing the heart of Jesus. It was a sloppy rendition of Adrian sharing the heart of Jesus. And when I see Paul talking about gentleness, at the same time talking about being under a curse, he is talking about people that are adding their culture to the gospel story and saying, you really aren't good enough unless you're doing these things that we've been doing our whole life. You are not acceptable. You may have heard this thing that Paul said. This church you have, yeah, it's a good start. But three quarters of you in this church are unacceptable to God. And we're here to tell you what you have to do to be acceptable to God. So these people who had lived in this system, many of which were, if not most of which, were being oppressed by the occupying Romans, because the Romans occupied everywhere. These oppressed people that probably were suffering so many things we can't even relate to, find grace, find unconditional love, they find acceptance. And then these people come there after Paul leaves and they try to destroy it all. They're condescending, they say, no, message you heard was incomplete, you're not accepted. The message you heard is incomplete. You're not good enough. The message you've heard is you need to add X, Y, and Z. And to change it all, it was specific practices indigenous to Jewish culture based on a strict reading of the Torah, except ignoring the year of Jubilee and all the stuff about caring for the poor, which was in there too. Uh, they were started out with circumcision. Circumcision, which uh, set Jews apart from every other people group because in the Jewish law, their children were circumcised at birth. And there's a lot of theories as to why that may have been true or not been true. That would happen to children. But they're going to grown adults and saying, okay, if you want to be part of this, your genitals need to go under the knife or you're not good enough. And I can't think of something more ungracious 
than telling an adult male that they need to have part of their genitals cut. I, I mean, this is scary, and it's inappropriate to even be sharing it here today. This is a very inappropriate book of the Bible. But this idea that your body is not right, it's essentially body shaming. Your body is not right. And then they go say, by the way, the food you eat isn't right. Which, you know, half of your life was spent either gathering food or eating food. And you're doing life wrong. And then they would go on all the litany. Now, when we go back to the story of Jesus, we see Jesus breaking uh, Sabbath laws and other laws. All that. We see that Jesus was not a stickler for the Torah. He was a stickler for the heart of God. He was a stickler for the heart of God, and he was a revealer of the heart of God. So there was an idea, just to kind of give you a little picture. Imagine uh, God calls Abraham and institutes uh, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, who follow the Torah eventually as it's compiled. And that is the people who received a promise at the beginning that through one of their descendants, all people groups in the world would be blessed. Now, the way Paul talks about the gospel, Paul, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, he talked about the gospel as being something that the, the Jewish people got the first opportunity to join up with. And then the Gentiles got to join up with. But the gospel thread itself is Jesus. So both the Jews and the Gentiles got to come together under Jesus and it's so brilliant, in a way, taking two cultural people groups that have virtually nothing in common, who are going to have the default of disliking one another, and saying, you people who don't like each other are the people of God, is like engineered to need the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost. Whereas the people who are coming to fix this inferior gospel, what they thought it was, were saying, no, Judaism going forward then Jesus kind of adds a new element to Judaism. But you guys can come into our Judaism with your Jesus element and be whole. So it was more like Jesus was an ingredient of their faith, not their faith was in Jesus. So if you think of a stream of God's work that two, people join, two groups join into or one group of people that gets an upgrade and then everyone needs to join into. So they both viewed it differently. They viewed it differently. And even Paul, like, uh, was it uh, Timothy, when they went to preach somewhere, Timothy voluntarily got circumcised because he was a Gentile convert. Not because we know, obviously, Paul didn't think this was necessary. He got circumcised because, listen, I don't even want to spend any time explaining this. this. These people need Jesus now, and I'm willing to suffer the worst thing a guy can suffer just to get to the point of talking about Jesus. It wasn't about uh, conforming. It was about a transforming person that is willing to suffer if it helps people know Jesus any quicker, which is radically different than a bunch of troublemakers coming to your church and trying to force everyone to go under the knife. They're to two totally different spirits. So what this is about is how do you identify as a follower of God? And the identification is what the kids talk about. The identification is the fruit of being of the species Jesus. The fruit of being of the species Jesus. That is how we recognize him. Not this cultural thing, not that cultural thing. And let me tell you, there's never been an organized culture of people. If you have a, several Christians from the same culture 
there's never been a time where they haven't accidentally taken parts of their culture and glued it to the gospel. Uh, do you realize every nation that somehow declares in their formation or their constitution any relationship to God or Christianity, like every European nation that ever had a state church, whether it was a state church in Iceland or England or anywhere, any place, or the Holy Roman Empire, you know, in Italy, like any nation that somehow tried to merge their faith with their political governance structure, every single nation go it to be uh, a royalist system, a parliamentarian system, uh, or even, or if you have a Republican ideal or a Democrat ideal, there's generally no, if you're Christians together in that part, you somehow are going to have a tendency to glue your politics or your, your partisanship or your governmental structure preference to your faith. And believe me, like everyone who lived under a king, which is another word for dictator, of ancient Europe somehow thought that that king was necessary for their faith. And to fall under that kingship was what you needed to do that to be a Christian. So they would colonize other people to bring them civilization, which they melded with Christianity. So there is a human tendency of all of us to add our culture to the gospel. And that's why we have the four gospels to meditate on over and over and over and over again, because that's kind of like this cleansing rush of water that takes out these putrid little cultural ideas that we've married to our faith, kind of like people do for their bodies when they have certain kinds of impactions. The gospel is the water that blows out the junk. And I, in my life, have so many times added uh, culture to my faith. So, when Paul's talking about curses, he's saying accursed. It is a curse. You are accursed to be someone that is a barrier between love of God and people. If you build a wall and don't build a bridge, could there be anything worse to be in the universe than someone that ungraces people? Than someone who convinces people that God doesn't love them unless... Imagine that you're the person that 20 or 40 people tie to is their reason they think Christianity is bogus. Imagine if you're a so-called Christian celebrity that countless people who followed your ministry now identify as not being a Christian because you helped, you added something of your culture or maybe your sexism or whatever to the faith. But listen to this. Cursed, when Jewish people recognize cursed people, there's another element to this. A cursed person is someone who was nailed to a tree, like Jesus. Actually, that was the biggest uh, symbol of being cursed, was to be nailed to a tree. Before crucifixion was invented, that's what the Jewish people believed. To be cursed was to be scourged, like Jesus was cursed. Cursed was about outward mutilating and suffering, being hurt. Because they all believed, well, you did something to deserve it. But Jesus became a curse to give people freedom. Paul was a murderer of people. Paul, when it came to how these people distorted the gospel or put barriers between people and God, Paul thought the most important spiritual practice was killing people he disagreed with. You know, it's interesting how uh, 
Christianity that absorbs culture and calls that Christian too is at the core of every bit of Christian violence that we've seen in the last 2,000 years. There's never been a corporate act of violence engaged in by the church that wasn't directly tied to them calling their culture Christian. There's not a single act of violence that was done in the name of Christ that wasn't a result of people adding things to the gospel because you can't read Jesus and get violent, period. So what's interesting, Paul was accursed. Paul was a walking embodiment of cursedness. His gateway to Jesus was this seeing Jesus in the flesh in this bright and shining revelation and he's blinded. And we know from later bits that he got most of his sight back, but not all of it. So Paul always had some kind of visual issue, which to be blind meant you were under a curse. Paul got beaten over and over and while he was healed, he was covered in scars. Paul would not be someone you would want to see. It's not like when they would stone you or beat you, they'd say, well, don't mess up the face. We need a good body for the funeral. No, he would have been as ugly and beat and bruised and scarred. Paul became a curse. He was cursing people. He visually looked like a curse to bring blessing. And I wonder if Paul went through this Christ-like journey, although Christ did not do the stuff Paul did before his conversion, but Paul's salvation was tied to his human suffering and bodily hurt. Could Paul be saying is, to these guys, is, you need to go through it. You need to go through it. And what is the journey of the accursed? Is they're invited to be healers. The accursed are invited to be healers. And in Paul's violent intervention of his life, in the violence he encountered because he was following God and the violence he would continue to encounter because the people who went to the church in Galatia to mess with them, Paul was a visual curse. And I'm wondering if, if Paul was invited to be a healer through experiencing the curse of religion, how much more uh, like would it be beneficial to these people that their story could be like Paul's instead of their destroying lives? So let's stand, let's worship, and we'll do communion. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll do communion. So I'm just scraping the very surface here, and one thing you're going to hear repeated every week is the fruit of the Spirit and how we can live into our identity in Christ, all right? Because we can't get too much of this, because we live in one of those global cultures. There's many countries that claim this. We live in a context where people relate Jesus too much to aspects of our culture, like they do in every country. But we are going to be able to walk wherever we're at, whatever victory we have, here's what we're invited to. Wherever I'm at, wherever you're at, we're going to take more steps towards the gospel, and we're going to cast off more of our culture that we thought was biblical. Amen? So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, on the night before he was beaten to death, beaten and then crucified. He took the bread and he broke it. He gave thanks before and he broke it and said, this is my body, it's for you. Yeah. This is my cursed, broken body for you. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is new covenant in my blood. You wanna talk, your, our, our new covenant, meaning this cup is the new Torah. My blood shed for you, that is your law. My 
Torah, my suffering is your law. Every time you drink it, remembering me. And Jesus was pretty clear. Every time you're eating, you're centering on this thought. We have communion with Jesus where we look like curses and we only bring blessings. Amen? Lord Jesus, let your presence, uh, let us experience your presence in these elements. Amen. Before we uh, start worshiping, we're going to spend, you guys can continue to play a little, but we're just going to spend about a minute and listen to God. And sometimes uh, there's something specific the Holy Spirit wants to point out through someone that might be beneficial to someone else. If God is real, sometimes even broken humans like us can catch onto the wavelength of what he's saying. And sometimes we may think he's saying something and we just had some weird pizza. Sometimes we may think it's just a random thought and it's actually Jesus. We work to discern that. So let's take a minute. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to come. Remain standing. If you'd like to, you can hold your hands out and ask that God would speak his love in any specific truth to us. If you want to. So come, Holy Spirit of Jesus, who's there for all of us. Come, Holy Spirit. God's been telling me that there are a number of people that have problems with hearing or taste or um, sensory issues. I don't, I, smelling, I don't know what, you know, but um, so if you have those, anything that's like coming to mind, um, I'll pray for you. I'd love to. And other folks can join the corners to pray as well. Just give an opportunity if anyone else is feeling anything. I felt like someone over here may have something and you're wondering, should I share this or is it just me? I could, that could be wrong, but I just feel like someone kind of over in this area has something that they feel like sharing, but they don't know if they should share. So if, if that is any ways accurate, please come up anyway and be weird. All right. Well, oh, well, someone on the opposite end. How's that? Yeah, I felt like the Lord was saying, um, the, when Jeff was preaching, like, the, the, the point of the book of Galatians is freedom, you know? And so being free is what God actually has for us. And that, that's what I want to say. <laughs> um, while we were worshiping, I was just thinking about the words and... Like, I, I feel so grateful because I hear these songs and I know that I'm finally, like, out of that place where I can know God's goodness and I can actually, like, sing about it and feel like it's actually real to me. Um, but I also felt the opposite when we were worshiping. Like, there, I feel like there's people here that 
hear these songs about the goodness of God or hear these songs about his faithfulness and just don't feel it right now. Um, if that's you, I would love to pray for you because I, I know what that feels like. <laughs> Amen. Well, God bless you. Let's worship Andy and Jess. Not worship Andy and Jess, but they're going to lead us in worship. <laughs> <laughs> 